please join me as we read our scripture, scripture passage, which comes from Matthew 21, 23, and Matthew 23, verses 15 through 46. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? And from Matthew 23. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar what the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. The same day Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife shall she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Bless the reading of the word. Amen. Thank you, Allison. Good morning. (laughs) My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, We're in the middle of a series that's going to take us all the way to Easter, uh, walking through Jesus' passion or his journey to the cross. And we've been seeing in the last few weeks that it is now the last week of Jesus' life. He's come into uh, the city of Jerusalem. He's gone into the temple and created quite a stir there. Uh, and what happens in result of all of that is that in, verse 20, in chapter 21, verse 13, the religious leaders and the temple authorities want to know why Jesus thinks he has authority to do these things. That's twenty-one, twenty-three. there, Matthew twenty-one, twenty-three, And that question is really the thematic hook for the rest of Matthew 22 and 23. Actually, 21, 22, and 23. 
And so in these verses this morning, we're going to look at what happens in this little scene. And, and what happens is, is three different groups of people, Herodians, Sadducees, and Pharisees, all come to Jesus with questions that are meant to test him. And all three times, Jesus somehow manages to avoid their trap and in the process establishes his authority or his right to rule over us and demand obedience from us. Now, that's what happens. Now, let me ask a setup question. I don't do this often, but this morning we're going to. And this is where I want you to kind of let your thoughts go uh, for the time that we have together this morning. And that's just this. Uh, I want you to think about what are the things in your life that you're most passionate about? What are the values? What are the ideologies? What are the, what are the issues, the convictions that are most important to you? What beliefs are you the most sure about? You're the most certain of? Now think about those things and then just ask this question. Do you allow God to speak into those issues and even possibly correct you? Are you willing to listen to Jesus and repent? Or is your mind already made up and so there's really no use talking about it anyway? Does, does Jesus have authority over even the convictions, the ideologies, and the values that you most cherish and are most passionate about and are most certain of? That's the question before us this morning. Now in these three Examples, I know it was a long passage to read, but we needed to do it to kind of see that three different times it happens. And each of these three groups has a particular issue they want Jesus to clarify his position on. Now, I need to let you know, I am going to be unsatisfactorily and intentionally vague about the particulars in each case. I don't know what it means that we're not going to marry. Don't ask me who are wives, married, what's that thing about the resurrection and marriage? I don't know. And if somebody tells you they know, I'd be careful to, to, because there's not a whole lot in the Scripture. But there, there's a lot of vague, you know, notions about what Jesus is doing here. And I am, I just need to warn you, I'm a chicken, I guess, maybe, or take, take what, you know, whatever it might be. But I'm going to be unsatisfactorily and intentionally vague about the particular teaching in each case. Because if we spend our time debating Jesus' teaching, we'd be missing the point he's trying to make. And the issue in this passage is not the content of Jesus' teaching, but the way he evaded their traps and established his authority. And so we're going to just walk through each case quickly, then use them together as a launching pad to talk about some of the deeper issues, the issues of the heart that are being revealed in these verses. So let's look together. First, um, we see in verse 15 that the Herodians, this group called the Herodians, come to him. This is going to be a long introduction, and then I'm going to have three points that we're going to nail at the end, Okay. The Herodians come. Now, the Herodians were a political party, you might say, who were supporters of King Herod. And Herod was the, the ruler of Palestine appointed by the Roman authorities to govern Palestine under Roman rule. So the Herodians were politically minded. They were probably pro-Roman in their political leanings. And they ask a question. They want to know what Jesus' political affiliation is. Is he in favor of paying taxes or not? Let me put this in terminology. Is he a big government guy or a small government guy? <laughs> right? This is a big deal for them. Uh, and the question puts Jesus in a tight spot, and that's really the issue. If he says yes, if he says yes, pay taxes, then those in the crowd who are anti-Roman in their leanings are going to be very upset with him. If he says no, then those who are pro-Roman are going to be very angry with him. And, they, and that's, that's the point. They think they've got him cornered. The question was meant, we're told in verse 15, to entangle him. It's a test, verse 18. They're trying to force Jesus to affirm one view or the other, you know, of those that are prevailing in the day, and by doing so, make enemies. But if you look at Jesus' answer, he doesn't answer really, at least not in the way they expected. 
or you could say his answer challenges the deeper assumption behind the question that one of the prevailing political affiliations is the right one and the rest are wrong anyway. Um, In his response, Jesus doesn't align himself with any of the prevailing political ideologies. It's amazing. And so were he here today, we could say Jesus probably wouldn't be a Republican, he wouldn't be a Democrat, he wouldn't be a Libertarian. Because by, by refusing to align himself with any particular political ideology, he's claiming to have authority over all of them. He takes the conversation to a different level, doesn't he? He says, this, that, that issue's not the real issue. So look in verse 20 in his response. He says, whose likeness is, is an inscription is this? They answer Caesar's. Then he says, verse 21, well then, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. So on the one hand, he affirms the authority and our responsibility to the government while at the same time delegitimizing the claim that government has on us. He says, our ultimate allegiance is to God and his claims, not to government and its claims. Taxes, no taxes, you know, that's not really the issue. The issue is your embracing of God's rule over your whole life. I mean, after all, what do you owe to government? A couple hundred bucks? But what do you owe to God? Everything. Everything belongs to God. Even government belongs to God, right? And so Jesus is saying obey government, but not for government's sake. Do it for God's sake. Because government belongs to God. And then we're told when they heard this, they marvel. <laughs> they just marvel. Because somehow, somehow he's, he's beaten them. And they know they're beat. So then, he's beaten the Herodians. And so a second group comes. The Sadducees, who believe there is no resurrection. They were an aristocratic sect in Jerusalem. The upper class in Jewish society. And also very politically active and conservative. Ultra conservative, really. Because... They were, they were the guys with all of the land and all of the money, and so they wanted the status quo to kind of remain in place. They were typically, in their day, very theologically conservative. They rejected the oral tradition of the rabbis and the rabbinic interpretations of the law as being authoritative. They, they would have seen that as liberalism in their day. They believed that only the scripture was authoritative. And so they come and they ask Jesus a theological question. They want to know his view on the resurrection, which would have been a very political doctrine as well but look they do you see they don't they don't just ask outright they're being sneaky in the way they ask the question so the question is really not sincere to begin with they ask about one woman and seven husbands and how that's all going to pan out the question is meant to show how ridiculous the idea is to begin with in their minds they're not they're not asking sincerely their mind is already made up they know where they stand they just want to know if jesus is a friend or an enemy And again, Jesus answers in such a way that he challenges the assumption behind the questions that what really matters is having right doctrine. He says, you don't know the power of God. That's not what we really asked about. And the crowd is astonished. And the Sadducees are silenced. Verse 34, I love it. Literally, they are muzzled. Don't you love that? They're just muzzled. And then the Pharisees see that Jesus has gotten one over on the Sadducees, who are their kind of rivals. And so they think, man, you know, if he's that hard on the Sadducees, then he obviously must be in our camp. And so they come, and they have a question as well. And they get really excited. And so they, they, they come, and they're religious fanatics. Their name in the Hebrew means detached or apart from. They were incredibly strict in their religious observance. They were politically very liberal, anti-Roman. They lived, breathed, and ate the law of God. There were schools 
in that day and even now where young children, the age of, you know, my young children, would memorize the entire first five books of the Pentateuch of the Bible in the Old Testament. They, they, were, they lived, breathed, and ate the law of God in the Scriptures. And so not surprisingly, their question is about the law. You see that? Which is the greatest commandment? Which is the most important one they want to, they want to know? Again, it's a question that was meant to challenge Jesus' authority and to force him to take a controversial position on the issue that would damage his reputation. So he would have to say, well, I think this is. And so then everybody over here would say, well, I disagree. You know, In other words, they were wanting him to polarize himself against a certain group of people and take a controversial position. Matthew says the question was meant to test him again, verse 35. And again, Jesus puts forth an answer that highlights his authority. He doesn't pick one of the Ten Commandments. You see that? He, his answer is unlike any they've ever heard in their lives. He says there's something more important than the rules. And that's love. And they have no response. Now, what's going on here is just this. Each of these three questions are polarizing. You know what I mean by that? Are you a gator or are you a Seminole? If you've grown up in Florida, you know how this works, right? They're polarizing. There's no middle ground. You have to choose sides. And in choosing sides, you automatically make enemies, right? If you Are you a Seminole or are you a gator? Because if you're a good Seminole, then by definition, that means that you are anti-gator. You derive more joy from seeing them fail than you even do seeing your own team win. Amen. I got an amen. Look at that. You see, on either side, if you're a Gator, you derive just as much joy. I mean, you, if you're a Seminole fan, you still hate Steve Spurrier. And it's been like 15 years or whatever. Right? These polarizing issues. Are you, are you a Republican or a Democrat? You know? Are you, are you pro-spanking or anti-spanking? Right? Are you public school, private school, or homeschool? All of these issues that are meant to be polarizing, there's no middle ground. You have to choose sides, and in choosing sides, you automatically make enemies. And that's what they want Jesus to do. They're trying to discredit him. They're trying to rouse enemies against him by forcing him to take a stand on the political, social, and theological issues of the day. Is he pro-Roman? Is he anti-Roman? Is he in the Pharisee camp? Is he in the Sadducee camp? Where is he? And Jesus refuses to fit into any of the categories. And so we learn something here. We learn that a lot of times in our lives, it's often not option A or option B. When we approach a lot of things as if, you know, it's option A or option B. And sometimes Jesus seems to be indicating, and we can learn from the scriptures, that a lot of times it's not not option A or option B. Sometimes it might just be why. Why? What's the deeper motivational issues involved in your life? And that's true of anything. You know, there's affiliations. Is Jesus blue or is he red? Well, maybe he's purple. Well, no, actually, he's turquoise. You know, there's the blue states and the red states. I mean, you know, is, you know or doctrine, paedo-baptism, believer's baptism, tongues, no tongues, or rules, you know, pro-spanking or, you know, baby-wise or not baby-wise or whatever it might be. And we can, you know, all be, and sometimes I think what Jesus is trying to teach us is it's not often, it's not a matter of option A or option B, but of the deeper heart motivational issues. Why? Why option A or why option B? A lot of of times those things are strategies, and Jesus 
refuses to fit into their categories, the Herodians, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees. Somehow, and this is, this is really what is amazing and almost what is impossible about this, is somehow Jesus manages to offend all three of them. All three. All three are unsatisfied by his answers to their questions. Somehow he manages to get it from all three of them. And it would be the same if he were here today. Religious folks would be angry with him because, like they were in the Gospels, because he'd be hanging out with sinners and having dinner with prostitutes. And political conservatives would be angry with him all the time because, you know, he wouldn't shut up about loving the poor and the disadvantaged. And political liberals would be upset because he would talk about sin and call people to repent. I mean, Jesus isn't. He doesn't fit into any of the categories that we put him in. You can't put labels on him. He won't let you do that. He won't let you box him into a particular political party or denomination or theological system because he claims to have authority over all of them. He decides the issues, not them. The Herodians want to talk about taxes. He wants to talk about loyalty to God. The Sadducees, they want to talk about the nuances of their doctrine of the resurrection. And he wants to talk about their arrogance and their unbelief. The Pharisees want to talk about the rules. He wants to talk about love. And in in each case, it's Jesus who sets the agenda. It's he decides the issues. He's not just another rabbi. And he doesn't validate their views. He confronts them. And that means that we should expect him to confront us too because, let's be honest, all of us are wrong. Not one of us in this room has a complete and unbiased understanding of the truth. We are all, the Bible says, prejudiced and self-deceived. And the way you know that Jesus has come into your life is just this, that he begins to rearrange the furniture of your life the way he did in the temple. That's how you know he's coming in. That's how you know you're getting close to where you're really dealing with him. Because, you see, if if you have a God who never challenges you and never convicts you and doesn't have a hard edge to his will, he just kind of lets you get away with whatever you want to do and never, never goes after you and never convicts you, that's an imaginary God. The way you know that the true God in Jesus has come into your life is he begins to push you around. He begins to speak to you about things that shouldn't be there. He begins to challenge your assumptions and priorities. And so... What we have to ask this morning is where he confronts us and where he begins to move in and move the furniture around in our lives. How do we bow our hearts to his authority, especially especially in the things that we're the most passionate about and the most sure? Because those are the areas where we're, the, where we're in the most danger. And so there, there are three things that the passage gives us to consider. And I know you're thinking, holy smokes, this is going to be the longest sermon in the history of sermons. But they're really quick because we spent most of our time there at the beginning. But there are three things in just this. They're the three... They're the three um, points in your outline. First, you have to come to the realization. We have to come to the realization that this is how you bow your hearts to him, especially in the things that you're most sure of and most passionate about. You've got to come to the realization that in your heart, you're putting God on trial. That That's the natural inclination of every human heart, man trying God. But then secondly, we need to be awakened to the reality that we are actually the ones that are on trial, that God's trying us. And then thirdly, see that the ultimate solution to the problem is to see God trying God. So there are three points. And let's just start very quickly and get to the end as fast as we can. But you've got to come to the realization in your heart that you're putting God on trial. This is how you begin to possess a heart that can bow to his authority. C.S. Lewis, who is most most well-known and most popular for his Chronicles of Narnia books, has a lesser-known book, which is a compilation of articles uh, and letters that he wrote, which is entitled God in the Dock doesn't mean much to us because we're not British, but to the Brits, to say God in the dock means God in the witness stand, God on trial. The dock was the witness stand. And so 
In the book he, he writes, he says, the ancient man approached God or even the gods as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge, man is. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is on the dock. Now, that's the reality of the human heart apart from the work of God's grace in it. Now, let me illustrate this for you. I, was, I did stay up late and watch the State of the Union address on Tuesday night and was fascinated, as I always am, especially by the commentary afterwards because here's my evaluation of how this thing works. Okay? And I could be naive and stupid, and you can correct me later, but um, it seems to me that even, especially in the commentary afterwards, it's like everybody has this list of issues that are important to them that they've already made up their minds about and that they're listening for what he's going to say about those issues so that they can either critique or approve accordingly. So it's, you know, I like that. I like that. I don't, you know, oh, that's good. Oh, no. Oh, I, no, that's, you know, I just, I just, and you listen to people, you know, on either side kind of talk about this afterwards, and I just think that the whole, the thing is so arrogant. I mean, it's putting yourself in the place of judge over the president of the United States, which, is one thing to do, and I can understand that if, you know, in some, at some level, but it's a whole other thing to do that with the king of the universe, and it's exactly what the Herodians, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees are doing. And it's what our hearts are naturally inclined to do as well. Twice in the passage we're told that these various groups come to Jesus to test him. Ooh, I like that. Ooh, I don't like that. You know, to test him, and in the Bible, to test God means to challenge him or to try to bend his will towards your desires. In other words, it means to try to own him, to try to tell him what he can and cannot do, to subvert his authority. And there's one story in particular in the book of Exodus, chapter 17, where Israel is still on their journey out of Egypt, and they're in the desert, and they're thirsty, which I can understand because I'm sure you are pretty thirsty in the desert, right? There's not a whole lot of water there. And they're, they're, they're kind of getting frustrated and annoyed, and they begin to grumble because... There, there's no water and they can't find it. And it gets so bad that eventually Moses, their leader, goes to the Lord and he says, you know, what do I do? What do I do about this? And, and the Lord says, take your, take your staff. There's a rock over there. Go strike that rock with your staff. And, and as Moses does this, water begins to flow out of the rock. And Moses names the place Massa, which is Hebrew, for the word testing. And here's what he says in Exodus chapter 17. Because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? You see, the people were unhappy with their circumstances, and so they quarreled with the Lord about it and demanded he do something. They tried to wrest control from him. They tried to say, you know, is the Lord among us or not? They put him to the test. If you're really who you say you are, you must do this for me. It was a power move. They put themselves in the place of master and put him in the place of servant. It's his job to do what I want him to do. I don't have to bend my will to his will. He has to bend his will to mine. And that's what it means to put God to the test. They put God on trial. And we do it too. We say to him all the time in our hearts, as long as you don't ask too much, as long as you don't go, you know, as long as you go along with the plan I have for my life, then we're okay. But if you cross me, if you get pushy, I'm out. I mean, do you know your heart well enough to know that you do that and to see that? And we don't say it with raised fists in the air and defiance, right? It's when we complain about our circumstances and when we're ungrateful and when we grumble and when we're not content with what we've been giving, which was my week this week. I just sinned mightily against the Lord, just grumbling and complaining. And then I read in Ephesians 2 where 
he has uh, raised us up with Christ and seated us in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus, that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. And I just stopped in my tracks. And I had to say, you've been so kind. And I grumble. See, in my heart, I was saying, God, you're not meeting my expectations. And in my grumbling and my complaining, there's an accusation. God, you're not good. You're, you're wrong. I'm right. You should listen to me and do what I say. I'm putting God on trial. I'm on the bench, and he's on the dock. But how do we get there? How in the world does that happen? And C.S. Lewis, again, is helpful, I think, because he says that modern people, the problem is, is that we've lost any sense of sin. That whereas 250 years ago, people felt guilty. They walked around just, ugh, with guilt. But today, people no longer feel the weight of their guilt and sin. And that's C.S. Lewis's way of reminding us that in reality, God is not on the dock. We are. We are accountable to him. He's not accountable to us. We don't have the right to tell him what he can and can't do, but he has every right to tell us. We don't own him. He owns us. We've forgotten our place and forgotten God's place. That we don't, we, we have no right to speak to him the way that we typically do. And this is what Isaiah means in our call to worship when he says, Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? He's saying, Hey, axe, don't forget you're an axe. You're the instrument in the hands of somebody greater. In Isaiah 29, 16, Isaiah says, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter who was regarded as, shall the potter be regarded as clay that the things made should say, what are you doing? Isaiah 45, 9, woe to him who strives with him who formed him. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? See, Isaiah is reasoning with us. He's saying, don't forget. Don't forget you're the clay. It isn't your will that's operative in your life. You're a created thing, not the creator, which means you're dependent upon the creator and you're accountable to the creator. You can't question him. He's not the one on trial. He's not the one in the dock, but he can question you. And that's what happens in this passage. You see that? Three groups come to him and they each have a question. And then at the end of all of their questions in verse 42, Jesus says, you know, now, guys, I have a question. I read that and it made me think of Job. If you're familiar with the book of Job, anybody, if you've read the Old Testament, and for 37 chapters, Job is this guy uh, who's a righteous man, and yet God, because of Satan's kind of uh, working in the circumstances of his life, he loses his house, he loses his kids, he loses everything, his whole life. And for 30, 37 chapters, Job and his friends question God. And in, in his anguish and despair, Job puts God on the dock. He hurls accusation. He puts God on trial. And then at the beginning of chapter 38, a hurricane blows through. And out of the hurricane, God speaks, and here's what God says. Enough. Now I will question you, and you will answer me. Now can I tell you that's, uh-oh. Right? God goes on, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? You think you're so smart? Tell me. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Is your voice the one that commands the mornings? Where does rain come from? Can you, you know, can you command the rain clouds? You want to argue with me? Answer my questions. And I tried to think of a PG way of saying this, but after the butt kicking of all butt kickings. Job, all Job can muster is, I can't answer. And I lay my hand on my mouth. I'm done talking. And then God's not satisfied, so for another two chapters, he lays into him for a little while longer. And at the very end, Job's answer to all this is, I know that you can do all things that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. 
Jesus endures their questions, and then at the very end, he is the one that puts the question to them. And if you look in verse 46, and this is the part I love, it says there, and no one was able to answer him a word, not, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. They were done with this guy. Jesus provides answers they cannot question, and he, question, and he asks questions they cannot answer. And by the end of the chapter, they aren't talking anymore. Literally, the verse says they've lost their courage. They were afraid of him. They came to put him on trial, but in the end, they realized that it was they themselves that were being tried. Now, let's apply this. Are you questioning Jesus, or are you letting him question you? If you're here and you're not a Christian, can I just ask you, are you standing above him saying, you know, I like that. I don't like that. Or does he get to stand over you and say, you know, I like that. I don't like that. Go back to the question I asked at the beginning. What, what the one thing, the ideology, the issue, the value you're most passionate about, you're most certain of, are you using that thing to test him, to question him, or are you willing to let Jesus question you about it? And where you're off base, are you willing, like Job, to repent? And that's absolutely frightening. I'll be, t- I'll be honest. Giving anybody that kind of authority, how in the world do you find the courage to do that, to invite Jesus' searching, probing questions, to let him come in to your life and rearrange the furniture? I mean, how do you stop putting God on trial and start allowing him to try you? And that's why we've got to finish just a couple of brief comments about God trying God. You've got to see God trying God. And here's what I mean by that. Here's what it takes to do that. You've got to know, in order to invite Jesus in, let him do that, let him ask questions like that, you've got to know that he's for you. If you're going to let him come in and start messing around with your life, you've got to know he's coming in in love. I mean, you do, or you won't let him in. And here's how you can be sure of that. Jesus is the long-awaited king, the son of David, who is David's Lord. But remember the story we're telling. Put this story in context of where we're going and where we've been. Where's all this taking place? And why is Jesus there? And where is he going? I mean, we're in Jerusalem, in the Temple Mountain. He's coming to the city to suffer and to die for sin. It's Tuesday. And on Friday, three days later, he will hang on a cross outside the city. God is going to try him and convict him and carry out the death penalty on him. Why? Because it's what our sin deserves. It's what all those who try to put him to the trial and subvert his authority deserve. But instead of carrying out the sentence on us, he sent Jesus, his son, to be counted guilty in our place and punished with the punishment that should have been ours. And that's how you can know. That's how you can know God's for you. And that's why you can stop putting him on trial and let him try you. Now, let me just conclude. You see, that's really what's behind all this, that we don't know God's for us. We don't know we're right. We don't feel right. We feel wrong. The Bible says there is an emptiness, an approval vacuum at the center of our lives, and you could try to fill that inner emptiness with all kinds of things, with an affiliation like the Herodians did or with a doctrine like the Sadducees did or with a rule of some kind like the Pharisees did. But the truth is, we love these kinds of questions that these guys bring to Jesus. We love these polarizing issues that are black and white and a matter of right and wrong because they create camps. And each camp kind of gathers together and they love one another and they're sure and they kind of feed on one another and there's all this energy because they're sure the other camp is wrong. They're right and everybody else is wrong and that just feels so good. To be right, for other people to be wrong, to be on the right side of an argument, to have the right belief, to live in a right way. We love to draw party lines. 
because it kind of fills the inner emptiness. It kind of does and gives you a sense of belonging and an identity and a rightness. It's a strategy of self-justification. And here's how you know. Here's how you know if you're doing this. Let me just kind of help you at the very end here. Here's how you know that it's, it's, you can't just be conservative. You've got to also be anti-liberal. You won't send your kids to private school because it works best for your family and that's what you feel called to. You'll, be, you'll become pro-private school, which will automatically make you anti-public school and anti-homeschool. You see that? If there's an affiliation or a doctrine or a rule, that, whatever the rules might be, I just kind of threw those out of the hat. Whatever it is that you're trying to draw life from, if you're looking to that thing for righteousness, you'll take people who disagree with you and you'll make them opponents. Not just people who are trying to love and figure out the will of God in the unique circumstances of their own life. They'll become opponents and then you'll despise them. You'll disdain them because it allows you to feel right and to feel superior and their difference in opinion threatens your rightness. Be careful. That that destroys community. And if you see that in you, then there's something that you're looking for for rightness. Apart from Christ, you're not resting in Christ. You're still trying to find a righteousness of your own. And you need to see God trying God. Jesus on a cross for you. Because that's what makes you right. And so when you see him, when you become completely convinced of his love for you, then you can open up your life to him, your whole life, even the most sacred commitments and priorities and values, and you can say, everything is fair game. Search me, probe me, question me. And that's what it means to live under his authority. And that's what these guys didn't do. But Lord willing, by the grace of God, that is the kind of people that we can become. So let's pray together that the Spirit would come and do that work in us this morning as we conclude our service together. Lord Jesus, you have said to us very clearly from the Scripture that all authority in heaven and earth is yours. You are the king that Daniel spoke of who would have and possess all dominion and power and greatness and majesty. That none could say to you, what are you doing? And when your hand went out, none could turn it back and none can thwart your purposes. And so we just pray that you would forgive us where we have tried to put you on trial. Remind us of the truth of the gospel this morning that it is we who are on trial. But that is not something we need to fear if our faith is in Jesus because he went to trial too. And because he went to trial and because he was judged guilty and condemned, we are received and welcomed into the family. Oh, Lord, would you come and convince us of that truth this morning that we might open our lives to your searching eyes (laughs) and to think that we don't believe that you already know what's going on and you don't already see. But to open our lives wide and say, come, rearrange the furniture. Come, make whatever changes you need to. Come, question me and challenge me. Rebuke me and I will listen. Would you work grace into our hearts that we might possess that kind of heart? Because that kind of person makes a great husband, makes a great father, makes a great wife, makes a great pastor, makes a great boss, makes a great worker, makes a great friend. That kind of person can change a city. And we want to do that. And so we ask that you come and do that. For your glory we pray. Amen. I'm so glad for the words of that song that remind us that the church is a people who are very different in many ways, in their affiliations and sometimes even in their doctrines or in the way they live their life, but who are brought together 
uh, by a common realization that we are not somebody with, with God, that we are not made right with God because of what group we belong to, or even having all the right doctrine, or even living all the right way, but we belong to him and are his, and his love is upon us because of the work of Christ on our behalf that is ours by sheer grace. And so that's the promise of this benediction, uh, that the grace of God indeed has come. And if your faith is in Jesus Christ, it now rests upon your life. And so receive this uh, in full assurance of the promise of God. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.